You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, so that Reed guy's been on our staff for about a year now, and we are very, very grateful for him being here and uh, being part of our team. So <clears throat> um, we've been in the book of Romans uh, since the beginning of the year, and the beginning of this letter is incredibly uplifting, encouraging. It begins with these seven verses of like incredibly rich theology of Paul saying, here is who God is. This is who Christ is. This is what God has done in and through Christ on our behalf. God has sent the spirit. Uh, There's Christology there. There's the doctrine of the Trinity all crammed into these first seven verses. Uh, It's a theological stew. Then you move into Paul with this really, really affectionate, um, sort of discourse with the Romans. I really want to come and see you. Uh, I want to be there with you. And then, of course, uh, Paul moves into his very, very famous declaration, I am not ashamed of the gospel, um, for it is salvation to everyone who believes. And then the letter turns a corner. And Paul begins to confront sin and unrighteousness. And he moves from confronting one uh, group of people to another. Uh, First, Paul confronts the blatant unrighteousness of the Gentiles, that there are those who um, they've traded the truth about God for a lie, and they have traded God's desire and plan for them for the lust of their own flesh. And the scarier part of that beginning part there is that it says that God finally gave them over to their lust and their desires. Well, then Paul begins confronting um, the uh, hypocritical righteousness of the moralizers. There are those within the church who not only condemn the people that are guilty of the things Paul had described, um, they judge the other people who are doing them. So you're judging these people for doing this, but you behind closed doors, you're doing these very same things yourselves. And then as we saw Chip uh, looked at last week, then Paul confronts the self-righteousness of the Jews, that they believe that salvation could be found within themselves. Well, this morning, it's all going to funnel uh, together as Paul comes to this ultimate conclusion in case any of us are sitting on the sidelines thinking, boy, I sure am glad I'm not one of those groups. And Paul tells us no one is righteous. None of us. There's not one. And while this is horribly bad news, it's the only thing that can lead us to the good news. We say that kind of thing often, and I think that often maybe there's a bit of confusion of what in the world do you mean by this? Got to understand the bad news to get the good news. Well, let's say that tomorrow you woke up with a nosebleed. And you know, you you got it to stop, and the next day, another nosebleed. And it just kind of kept getting worse for about a week. Well, then finally, you got these nosebleeds to subside and go away, but then you began to have this headache. And it moves from annoying the first couple days to you keep waking up, and now it's beginning to be excruciating. And after about two weeks, which is what some of us in here it takes before we'll ever think about going to the doctor, 
you go and you tell them, I'm having these nosebleeds and these headaches. And the doctor says, I'm a little concerned about this. We need to run some tests. And you get stuck in the little microwave MRI machine and they pull you back into the doctor's office and they say, yeah, we got some bad news for you. You have a brain tumor and uh, we need to go in immediately and get that out. And they do. And you finally wake up from surgery and they come in and the doctor tells you, I have great news for you. You did have a cancerous tumor and we got all of it out. At some point, I think that you and I both would have the wherewithal to say, thank you, God, for that nosebleed. Thank you for that headache, the annoying, excruciating headache that was horribly bad news that led me to realize what was really going on, and now here I sit healed. We've got to understand that in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness to drive us to the point of understanding that we need someone who does. Enter Jesus. We're going to be in Romans 3 this morning, but I want to start um, right where Chip ended last week, um, at the end of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Look with me. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now let's clear something up here. Um, Are there Jews outwardly? Yes. Is circumcision a physical, tangible act? Yes. But Paul is saying there's much more to what God intended in these things of spiritual significance. Verse 29. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The one who understands these things does not seek the approval of man, but of God. So Romans 3, verse 1. Then understanding all of this, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, now, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul's addressing this question, and I know that we almost find it ridiculous, but this question that's moving throughout the church of, well now, okay, so if God is so rich in grace and mercy and forgiveness, if I maybe sin more, doesn't this give him an opportunity to display that grace and forgiveness? So should we maybe just be okay with sinning because of what it gives 
gets God the opportunity to do? And Paul's already answered the ridiculous question, by no means. This is foolishness. He goes on, verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. So Paul has already stated a true Jew is one whose heart has been drawn to God. So it's a very, very relevant question for Paul to pose. Then what advantage do the Jews have? And he answers his own question, much in every way. But let's think about that question um, from a historical perspective. Let's think about the question, what advantage have the Jews from our side of history? And I want to preface what I'm about to say by by saying that I am only going to barely scratch the surface, okay? But let's begin in slavery. The Jews were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and it was as bad or worse as you and I can possibly imagine. Eventually, as we know, they are delivered. They make it out into the wilderness headed to the promised land, but they wind up having to wander there for 40 years because of rebellion and disobedience. And they don't leave the wilderness until an entire generation of the rebellious, obedient, disobedient die off. So finally, we enter the promised land. After several hundred years, civil war tears the nation in two. The northern kingdom is almost completely decimated by Assyria. And then not long after this, the southern kingdom is invaded by Babylon, the temple destroyed, and almost all of God's people taken into captivity. They're there for 70 years. Understand that for a lot of people, that is an entire lifetime. Eventually, many of them still living, return home. Well, not long after this... um, the Jews are conquered by Antiochus Epiphanes, Greece. Uh, After Greece comes Rome. Rome is definitely not any better than Greece, possibly worse, because Rome begins the tradition of crucifying tens of thousands of Jews publicly. That, of course, sets the stage for the day and time when the Messiah comes. And as you know, Herod, the king hears about this Messiah who's coming and is very insanely jealous. And the only way that he knows to ensure that this king doesn't wind up taking his place is he has thousands of Jewish baby boys slaughtered and massacred. So we're doing good so far, right? All right, so Jesus is born, lives, um, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends back to the Father. The church starts A.D. 70. Here comes the great persecution. We've just gotten through. We went through the the letter of 1 Peter in the, the month of February. Well, that letter was written to the exiles who were scattered from Jerusalem. Why were they scattered? Because Rome attacked and ransacked the city. Again, destroyed the temple. Murder thousands of Jews. But many of them escaped. 
And again, those who escape and wind up scattered all over the region, um, Peter writes his letter to them. But see, there were those who weren't killed and who didn't escape who were taken into slavery. Easily 100,000 Jews. Not long after this, 30, 40 years, Emperor Hadrian uh, murders five, 600,000 Jewish men in the area that we now call Palestine. The year 380 is incredibly significant because Emperor Theodosius I made a public declaration that the Jews were an inferior race of human beings. You should write that date down, 380. Because you see, that idea stuck. It's still stuck today. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, 1254, King Louis IX banishes all Jews from France. 1306, a lot of them had returned. Well, 100,000 more are expelled. We all know the date 1492 because that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and you know what happened from there. But what you probably don't know is that when Columbus left Spain, um, all the Jews were kicked out of Spain. All of them. And Portugal, not wanting to you know, be too far behind Spain, followed suit and they expelled all the Jews as well. 1818, um, thousands of Jews are massacred in the Ukraine. By the time you get to the turn into the 20th century, the only European countries where there really remain any concentration of Jews are the countries of Poland and guess where else? Germany. And you know where that leads. Because in the 1940, Hitler exterminates 6 million Jews. And this was actually for racial reasons, not religious ones. And again, if you go all the way back to 380 and Emperor Theodosius, you see that that public declaration um, stuck for quite a long time. John MacArthur, in responding to all of this, he says this, From the purely historical perspective, therefore, Jews have been among the most continuously and harshly disadvantaged people of all time. Not only have Jews historically had little social or political security, but in Romans chapter 2, Paul declares that although they are God's specially chosen and blessed people, Jews did not even have guaranteed spiritual security, either by physical lineage or religious heritage. Being born a descendant of Abraham, knowing God's law and being circumcised did not assure them a place in heaven. In fact, rather than protecting Jews from God's judgment, those blessings made them all the more accountable for obedience to the Lord. So understanding all of that, and again, seriously, I just scratched the surface How are the Jews advantaged much in every way? Well, MacArthur actually says it woven into what he has said here. Yes, all of these things did occur, but understand that these are God's specially chosen and blessed people. 
in the sermon notes there, I've listed a few references, and these are a drop in the bucket that we find throughout the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, where God testifies and affirms before, during, and after, these are my people. These are my chosen people. Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalm, Isaiah, all through the scriptures. Paul says here in verse 2, the Jews have the oracles of God. They have been entrusted with the oracles of God. They've been given the word of God. The Jews not only had the Mosaic law, they had the entire Old Testament to point them to Jesus. Throughout, God has given them his protection, his provision, his deliverance over and over again. He has written his name above their lives. He has grafted his word into their heart. So is there an advantage in being a Jew? Absolutely. But as Lee Corso would say, not so fast, my friends. Look at verse 9. What then? And I realize that some of you ladies right now are, who's Lee Corso? Just Google it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Nope. Not at all. For we have already charged, we have already laid this out, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So is there an advantage in being a Jew? Yes, yes, absolutely, much in every way. Okay, so Paul, what you're saying is that we Jews are better off. Nope, not saying that at all. Sometimes you can begin to think that Paul maybe can't make up his mind. Here's the thing. Paul has without question made up his mind. It is the Jews that are not understanding. And he's trying desperately hard to help them understand. The standard is not the Jewish religion. The standard is God's righteousness. See, he gave them the festivals and all of these things to point them to Christ. But what began to happen along the way was they began to believe that their religion was their righteousness. And Paul is trying desperately hard to help them to see the truth. Yes, they were chosen by God, but they continually rejected him, disobeyed him, rebelled against him. Yes, they were given the Old Testament, just like the apostle Paul was who constantly rejected Christ in the first years of his life. They rejected him, but now understand, here's the caveat in all this. There are some Jews, and I'm not just talking now, I'm talking then. There were some Jews who had come to faith, who saw what Jesus did and that he was the fulfillment, and they said, this is the Messiah, and they believed But what happened was they had begun living again as if their salvation depended upon their own religious works and not the righteousness of God. And Paul is saying you can't have your feet in both of those boats. Many who had trusted in Christ were still not understanding that Christ did not come to complement the law or supplement the law. He came to fulfill it. 
And the standard, it's not your lineage or your heritage. Students, kids, you need to understand that your parents' faith is of enormous significance because it should lead you to see what it looks like to follow Jesus, but your parent cannot lead you to follow Jesus. You must choose to follow him, to chase after him. Paul is saying it doesn't matter about your heritage. It's not about your mama. It's not about your rituals, your devotion. It is definitely not about your performance, your merit, or anything that you can do. The standard is God's righteousness, and no one lives up to it. No one. And so Paul is about to quote one Old Testament passage after another that affirms this because he knows the Jews will know these scriptures. Look at verse 10. Paul says, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 19th century Russian novelist by the name of Ivan Turgenev, he actually wrote some works that you might know of, but Probably none of us know his name. And to be very, very honest with you this morning, the only thing that I have ever read of Ivan's is the quote I'm about to share with you. He once said this, I I have not seen, I don't know what the heart of a bad man looks like, but I do know what the heart of a good man looks like. And it's terrible. What on earth does Ivan mean? He means that Whatever you and I might be able to think is the height of our goodness, it still comes nowhere near the standard of the righteousness of God. The Jews had the law, but they were not understanding this was given to point you to something and someone greater. They, they kept trying to lived this law out, believing it was saving them, not understanding that what the law was actually doing was revealing you're condemned. I'm looking around this room, and we look like a pretty smart group. So I'm, I'm going to assume most of us in here know the difference between light and shadow. But let's talk about it for a second. What these two things do. Light exposes. Shadows excuse. They, they actually cover over. 
So prepare yourself the next time you have your family photo session and the photographer is obsessed with getting the sunlight off of your face, it's because they like you. And they know that the sun doesn't do you and me any favors. The sun says, man, you need more eye cream. Shadows say, man, you look great. Shadows cause people that know me to go, you don't look a bit different than you did 10 years ago. Well, you're seeing a picture. Pictures lie. Light exposes. Shadows excuse. Okay? The law does not cover over our sin. It actually exposes it. The law is like a black light on a white shirt. Everything shows up. If you grew up in my generation, I don't know if you did this, but lots of Friday nights like to go to the roller skating rink. It's the cool place to go. At the roller skating rink, I used to love it when they would turn all the regular lights off and the black lights on. Um, I don't really know why it makes you look so cool, but it does. Your teeth, like you could have the nastiest teeth in the world and it looks like you just went to the dentist. You know, they're like beaming out of your head, different stuff's glowing. But as an adult, totally different perspective of black light. You're looking down and you're like, what on earth? How do I have eight pounds of lint all over my shirt? I mean, you go to black light and you're going to wind up buying one of those lint rollers and just using it all the time. Because what it does is it exposes everything. Friends, the law reveals no one is righteous, not one of us. And we appear to be in big, big trouble. So what are we to do? Look at verse 21. Paul says, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Hey Jew, hey Gentile, hey moralizer, there is no distinction, none. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, if you Don't hear anything else this morning. I pray that you hear this. In and through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not simply pardoned. We are justified. And there is a difference. In and through Jesus Christ, we are not simply pardoned. We are justified. In courtrooms every day, people are pardoned. People who maybe have been in jail and are as guilty as guilty can get for whatever sent them there. 
But they stand before a judge, and that pardon, what it says is, you can go. You are being forgiven. You can go. Um, but if you've ever witnessed someone being pardoned before, I've, I've been physically in the courtroom multiple times when this happens, you will hear a judge usually say something, especially if it's a young person, like, I don't ever want to see you in my courtroom again. You can go, this is being forgiven, it's being excused, but don't wind up back here. Justification says, you may come. You're welcome. You are included. You are accepted. You are not guilty. In fact, there's no record here at all. You keep saying, hey, this is what I did. I know you're going to find it there somewhere. But I'm looking and it's wiped clean. There is no record. See, pardon is the remission of justified punishment. But justification is the declaration that there are no grounds for punishment. There's a difference between something being a cause and an effect. And our works are not the cause of our justification and righteousness, but they are the fruit and the result of it. Guys, y'all can go ahead and bring that up here. Y'all just ignore them. They're trained professionals. They've got this covered. Okay? Our works are not the cause of our justification and righteousness. They are the result of it. To believe that anything that we can do, um, that anything we do can bring about or even contribute to our salvation is to believe that our sanctification is what leads to our justification. Let me repeat this because I don't want it to be lost on you, okay? To believe that anything we do can bring about or even contribute to our salvation, us receiving the love of God, us being reconciled back to the Father, that's to believe that my sanctification leads to my justification. And that is the exact opposite of the truth. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to show you visually um, what I think this looks like. I understand that not everybody in the room can see this. It's actually going to be on the screen. Um, and so this is what happens when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm like, I think I, I understand this. And I go to the whiteboard in my office and I have all these colored markers and I start going to town. It helps me. Maybe it will help you. All right. So start with me here. That was really funny. Start with me here. This is you. Black circle, red dot. I know some of you are thinking, that really doesn't look like me. It does. Trust me. That's you and me, and we are all born with the seed of sin, every one of us. And whether it takes a week, a month, a year, we don't know how long it takes. It's probably different in all of us. At some point, that seed grows and gives way to death. 
that is depravity. That is the doctrine and the understanding that you and I, every single one of us, were born into sin and rebellion. We were born with our hearts set against God. And because of this, every single one of us face condemnation. Friends, that is Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. There is no one righteous, none. But now, but now, this is the nosebleed and the headache. This is the awakening of why. But now, in and through Christ, through what Christ has done on the cross, through the atoning work of Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to rise from the dead, now in Christ, you and I are justified. We have justification. And now when we come to faith in this, when we have received justification by believing in what Christ has done for us, Christ sends his spirit to indwell us. And it is through the spirit that we begin to be sanctified, to begin to be refined, to begin to be made more like Christ. It is through the spirit that the works that God prepared beforehand for us to do, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that these works begin to unfold and be produced in our life. Then, through the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, Galatians chapter 5, it begins to bud and grow and come alive in our lives. And people like you and me, who in our own flesh, we have no real ability to love, we don't have any desire to be patient, we have no capacity to be gentle, the next thing you know, through the power of the Spirit, we see gentleness. We see kindness. We see patience. Don't get this backwards. These things do not justify us. Only Jesus does. And because he has now justified us, now we can produce these things in our life as a result. That is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Now, somebody may throw a flag and say, now, wait a minute, Brian, a couple weeks ago, didn't we talk about God's judgment and that we're all going to face it? Yes, we did. Good call. But understand that for those of us who are in Christ, this judgment is no longer about retribution and penalty. This judgment is about eternal reward. Because you see, you and I hear that word judgment and we instantaneously think negative. But you know, somebody will probably stand before a judge this week whose father died and the judge looks him in the face and says, yep, everything that your father owned, he's left to you. It's all yours. The judgment will be in favor of and this justification that we have received in Christ that has led to our sanctification will ultimately lead to our glorification when Jesus comes and makes all things new, including you and me. That's the gospel. That's what changes everything. The gospel 
of grace produces in us something fundamentally different than the spirit of zealousness in religion. Religion makes you proud and self-centered. It bears the fruit of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. But the gospel, it makes us humble and generous and gracious because we begin to bear the fruit of Christ in and through our lives. In and through Christ, we are not simply pardoned. We are justified. I want to close this morning just sharing this quick story with you. Um, I've learned a few things over the years about the English people um, from my brother and sister-in-law and their family living there. And one thing I know is that the English are very, very proud of some things. One of those things is Rolls Royce. Very proud. Well, there was a man who saved his whole life for a Rolls Royce, and he bought it. And he decided, I'm going to take this over to the big country, um, that'd be what we call Europe, and I'm just going to drive. And so he's cruising Europe in his Rolls Royce, and somewhere along the way, it broke down. He gets word home, uh, I'm stranded over here. My Rolls Royce is broke down. They basically say, don't move. We'll be there momentarily. Uh, they send a mechanic all the way over to find this man. He fixes the car. Man carries on and continues his vacation. A week or so later, he puts his car on the boat, comes back across and comes home and realizes, I've got to settle this with Rolls Royce. Surely there's a bill. Surely I owe them something. He writes the company. He gets nothing back. He calls the company. They say, sir, we don't really know what you're talking about. Eventually, after being really persistent, because I don't want any debt out there that's left unresolved, this is the letter that he received. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. That's justification. God is saying to you and I in Christ, I don't know what you're talking about. You have been made whole. This has been wiped clean. Jesus did not haphazardly proclaim it is finished and then breathe his last. He meant it. And so, friends... The record in Christ is erased. The guilt is removed. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You and I don't need more religion. What we need is God's righteousness, and it has been made available to us in Christ. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.